If you are in the 81% of aspiring authors out there, stop aspiring and start writing with Readsy. Readsy allows indie authors to find and work with the best publishing professionals, from developmental editors to book cover designers to publicists. Just sign up for an author profile, browse the extensive marketplace of professionals, find the best fit for your project, and set a collaboration in motion. And with built-in contracts, protection, and mediation from Readsy, finding qualified freelancers, editors, designers, and marketers as a self-published author just got a lot easier. Go to readsy.com today to sign up and set your first collaboration in motion. That's R-E-E-D-S-Y dot com. Oh no, that's a great term. That was it was laziness. I still don't really understand how I do it. To be told exactly what to write, I kind of gave up. That sort of story is inspirational to a lot of wannabe writers out there who feel they have a book in them but are living a totally different life at the moment. It spoke to me to be away from a cookie cutter sort of, that's a terrible word. I started working on writing as escapist. Taking a book the whole nine yards, from an idea in your head to words on a page, from a scribble on a napkin to a listing on Amazon, that's easier said than done. But it's also easier than you'd think. I'm your host, Casimir M. Stone, and this is Readsy's Best Seller, the podcast demystifying the process of self-publishing a book for aspiring novelists everywhere, one episode at a time. This is Season 3, Chapter 4, Paperback Writer. Paperbacks get a bad rap. When compared to the esteemed scholarly hardcover, paperback formats have an extensive history of eventually becoming insults code for cheap, dumb page-turners, novels without much pulp between the covers, so to speak. By the onset of the Industrial Revolution, the steam-powered printing press was invented and soon publishing houses took full advantage, turning out affordable books bound with paper and glue instead of leather and stitching, and formatting them in a much smaller size in order to appeal to railway travelers. These cheap books, called yellowbacks after the standard mustard hue of their covers, immediately became associated with sensation fiction, a literary phenomenon one critic derided as extremely provocative of that sensation in the palate and throat which is a premonitory symptom of nausea. By the turn of the 20th century, publishers had transitioned away from yellowbacks. Now they churned out magazines made of wood pulp paper, sized around 6.5 by 4 inches, encased in salmon-colored paper wrapper in lieu of a cover, and sold for about a dime. They were known, naturally, as dime novels. Or, of course, pulp fiction. What? Which you'll surely recognize these days as a pejorative term for superficial lurid exercises in quantity over quality. But now, in the present day, we're left with airport novels, those bright, thick thrillers that populate kiosks across the globe, waiting for the unwary, jet-lagged mother who's about to sit in a flying metal box for six uninterrupted hours. The phrase airport novel, just like Yellowback and Pulp Fiction, is still used to denote certain books as little more than brief, inexpensive entertainment. But at the end of the day, just like those early pocket-sized books were designed for light travelers or those quick fixes of pulpy fun existed exclusively for those who had no more than a dime to spend on reading, airport novels are informed by the expectations of their audience. 
when hurtling through the sky at 500 knots, you probably don't want to think about philosophy. Jody Pico's latest is likely more than enough. In other words, format matters, both to your readers and to how others perceive your work. Young adults don't read ebooks as much as they read paperbacks, at least what I've discovered and through my experience. I sell a lot more paperbacks than I do ebooks, which isn't the norm for indie authors, I think. It's easier to market ebooks than it is to market paperbacks. And so I have found that to be an issue. Remember, readers, especially the ones that best-selling young adult author Tara Holiday writes for, are very picky. There's a reason why A writers often choose the traditional publishing route. There are less avenues in self-publishing to market paperbacks or target readers who aren't buying books for themselves. That just makes it that much more important for indie authors to know what their readers are looking for and to give it to them. If you look at YA teen paranormal, or even more specifically for mine, teen and YA mermaid fiction, I think is the title on Amazon. Um, All of the covers are dark. Um, They're usually, um, the color fades in towards the middle and it's darker on the edges. Lots of blues, lots of greens, lots of purples, a little bit of pink. Um, But there's this tone of like epic fantasy type um, angst on the cover. But pretty, pretty angst. Pretty dark angst. (laughs) (laughs) We talked last week about tropes and how it can often be beneficial for authors to hit on certain story beats that readers are expecting, or to purposefully invert them. But when it comes to how your story is packaged, the cover design format and layout, readers have expectations too. And adhering to those norms is even more important because it can dictate whether or not readers pick up your book in the first place. Which posed a problem for Tara because, well, in all honesty, she was hardly even familiar with the norms of her genre to begin with. I don't know if I should confess this, but <laughs> I, I don't read YA fantasy. Really? Really, I don't. Um, but a lot of my readers will come tell me, oh, you need to read this book. And it's usually YA fantasy. And I'm thinking, okay, I should. I'll put it on my to-do list. But... When I was a music major, a lot of times I would be composing as part of that major and the final product would have stuff that like my subconscious pulled from somewhere else and I was unintentionally plagiarizing often. And so I get scared to read YA fantasy that I'm going to take something unintentionally from their magic system or their culture or whatever it is. I get really nervous, really, really nervous. So... How do you work within the conventions of a genre that you hardly even know? When it came to telling her story, Tara happily took the unconventional route, inverting tropes and reader expectations at every turn. It's only natural, then, that she shucked convention when it came to packaging her story, too. My covers are, you know, it's not a photo of a girl a beautiful woman with hair all over the place or um, a mermaid. As a self-published author, you're most likely not going to have young readers stumbling across your book in a Barnes & Noble or begging for it for their birthday after hearing a glowing review on NPR. 
you could write the best book ever, but you have very few chances to get readers to pick it up in the first place. The cover is one of the big ones, and yet Tara ignored her genre's cover norms entirely. Why? One of the problems with my series is that though it is paranormal technically, it reads more like YA. And so when I was talking with my cover designer and I saw her style and I loved it and um, I had asked her about it and she's, and you know, she read the book and she said, you know what, your technical genre, this mermaid YA paranormal fantasy, um, when you look at the covers online, your book doesn't feel like it's about the magic or it's about this cool new setting or it's, you know, it's, it's, it doesn't feel like that. It feels like a YA read. It feels like a girl going through life and, and having typical life struggles. And so, um, we did covers that are more YA covers instead of YA paranormal covers. And there's been a lot of pros and cons to that. There's something to be said for being true to the essence of your book, sure. And when you're fighting to stand out from the crowd, there certainly are some pros to deviating from the norm. I've gotten a lot of readers because of the covers, because they're not YA fantasy covers. A lot of people have told me, you know, I don't read YA fantasy, especially like paranormal. I, it's not something that I read at all. But I saw your cover and it was different and it made me not expect the um, tone or tropes or it made me not expect a typical why paranormal and so I thought I would give it a try and I'm so glad that I did and so I brought readers into the genre which is pretty cool but there are cons too and they're not necessarily small ones genre covers look the way they do and they all kind of look the same for whatever their genre is for a reason because it sells Mm-hmm. And people who are looking for a bodice ripper romance want to see a bodice ripper romance cover <laughs> because then they know what to expect, right? And so people looking for, specifically looking for YA teen mermaid fiction are probably looking for a cover that looks like all the other YA teen mermaid fiction. And so I did go outside of the box and whether or not that's a good or bad thing, it's a big chance that it was a bad thing in terms of sales, but it's what I wanted and it's what the book kind of felt like. On the other end, my editor straight up told me, your covers are beautiful. They look cute, but your book is not cute. Your book is epic and you need epic covers. You need to change your covers. And so it's, you know, it's a catch 22. Let's stop there for a second. To understand why Tara insisted on keeping her covers, even if she knew it might ultimately impact her sales, you have to understand what the covers look like. You can see the cover to her hit novel, Hiding Halo, in this season's show notes, but in case you don't have a chance to check it out right now, let me hand off the mic to Tara for a second. Mine are digital graphic renderings. Um, They're kind of symbolic, and uh, each cover has a symbol on it. The first book has um, scales because my characters, they're not mermaids, they don't have fishtails, but they do have a patch of scales on their back. And my main characters, they call them a mosaic. My main character's mosaic um, is different and it signifies who she's supposed to be. And it's blue instead of what everybody else's are. And so there's a blue 
fish scale pattern um, on the front cover. And the second one was all about fire. And so I was thinking that my graphic designer would come back with orange or red. And she came back with pink. And I loved it. And she goes, I know this doesn't really convey um, danger and fire, but it's still, it's not a violent book. It's not, you know, and so she kind of softened it up with the pink and the title is Halo Hunted. And so if I had Halo Hunted and dark red and orange and fire and all this stuff, it, it would take away from the relatable teenage girl in the first book. And yeah. so she she took the fire. There's still a fireball on there, and it has that edge to it, but it's softened with this kind of pink background. I don't know. I love it. I love it so much. <laughs> but again, it looks nothing like YA teen mermaid fiction, any of the bestsellers in that category. For airport novels and pulp magazines and yellowbacks, their design is as much a source of ire as it is a coy marketing move, an explicit advertisement with copy boldly stating, you get what you pay for. And while YA teen mermaid fiction might not be as universally disparaging as dime novel, it's clear even from the way Tara talks about her novel's designated genre that it doesn't really capture the magic of hiding Halo. So. In a way, taking the unconventional approach to cover design was a response to this historical tradition of cheaply printed novels. Tara didn't just want a cover that would catch readers' eyes in a virtual kiosk, she wanted a cover that worked with her story, not just for it. Make no mistake, this is the trickier route to take, especially for indie authors. Unlike inverting tropes, you risk more than customer dissatisfaction by going within unconventional cover. You risk losing income. However, many choose self-publishing because of the control it allows over your story, your content, and yes, your formatting. So of course it's okay to stay true to your vision as long as you pick up the slack elsewhere, making sure that no matter how unique your packaging is, the rest of your book remains up to professional standards and you still view your cover as an important marketing tool. At the same time, I've probably lost readers who are looking specifically for that genre and that tone. And so um, I'm actually right now in the middle of, I'm running Amazon ads for two weeks with my old covers and Amazon ads in the future for two weeks with new covers to try to see if it makes a difference, a little bit of testing. Oh, wow. Running ads with different covers to see which one readers are drawn to, known in the industry as A-B testing, is a great way to make sure your cover is resonating, especially if it doesn't fit within the norms of your genre. It's basically, well, at least Amazon ads, you're not necessarily making a new graphic like on Facebook where you would, you know, make an image and put words on it or, or well, actually not put words on it. You're not really supposed to have a lot of words on Facebook ads, um, but a photo and, you know, your cover or whatever it is, some sort of ad and then copy edit of trying to entice the reader. That's Facebook ads. Amazon ads um, is more, it's like a store listing as opposed to a graphic. And so you get one sentence or so to entice the reader and it's underneath your cover with its price and everything on there just as a normal store listing. 
So you run ads and you get you get feedback. You know, what type of people are clicking on it? How often are they clicking? Um, do they end up buying when they follow through? And then you can, based off of that feedback, tweak your ad if you think it's just the copy edit that's the problem. In my case, I'm gonna tweak the cover and um, see if that makes a difference in the return on, it's called ROI, your return on investment, how much money you've put into the ad versus how that helps your sales and then looking at the actual data of the demographics of those. But your book's packaging doesn't just end with your cover. Remember, there's an entire business built around monetizing reader expectations. So when it comes to formatting your books, expectations are no longer simply categorized as vaguely defined tropes on a user-generated wiki. Instead, they become strict guidelines that dictate whether your book looks professional or not. And, of course, they have an official name, too. Publishing Industry Standards. Wait, the publishing industry has standards? You might wonder, if you ever marveled at the seemingly infinite variations of book sizes on the shelves of your local library, or happened to pick up Sean Penn's latest attempt at fiction. But despite the wide variety in sizing, formatting, and, yes, quality in traditionally published books, there is always a method to the madness. Sean Penn, after all, is a very famous actor, and if you're going to buy a book solely because it was written by a very famous actor, you probably won't care how many times it contains the phrase, tweet me bitch, I dare you. Spoiler alert, it's a lot. Likewise, if you were to encounter a children's book the size of Audubon's Birds of America typeset in Comic Sans, you might be baffled, but rest assured, it exists for a reason. Somewhere, someone's expectations have been met. Most books, of course, aren't so massive. Your average fiction books are categorized into trim sizes, aka the width and height of the book, and most fall under three umbrella terms, hardcover, mass market, and trade paperback. Hardcovers are naturally larger, ranging all the way up to the dependable 8.5 by 11, and mass market paperbacks are the spiritual successor to yellowbacks, designed to fit on tiny supermarket racks. Trade paperbacks, meanwhile, are just right. Usually sized around 5 by 8 inches, they are the go-to format for most physical copies these days, especially YA books, as they're perfectly designed to fit in a backpack or cubby and to show off during a book report. That's a lot of information, I know, but it's important for indie writers to know, too. Your formatting can inform everything from the audience you're targeting to the cost of printing your book. Fortunately, ReadZ published a blog post that breaks down trim sizes in great depth, so I've dropped the link in this episode's description. Point is, as a self-published author, you won't have a team of professionals ensuring that your book looks professional, so you'll need to make sure it is up to standards yourself. And as Tara discovered, this is even more important when writing YA. For young adults, paperbacks are a preference, which means for young adult authors, they're a necessity. Yeah, as you mentioned, like paperback isn't really the route that a lot of self-published authors take. What is just like the literal steps you have to take to get your book printed paperback as opposed to just, you know, putting it up through Kindle Direct Publishing on onto Amazon? It's kind of the same process. You upload a PDF instead of a uh, EPUB file, um, you quadruple check that thing <laughs> for, for like orphan lines or weird 
locations for page breaks or weird hyphens or are your ellipses breaking and so there's kind of a trick to keep your ellipses from breaking over lines it's just it's a whole it's a different sort of formatting process for sure um and you upload it to now kdp and create space are now merged i also i was asked to be a an author at a local barnes and noble book signing oh wow and they only buy they you know they don't buy from CreateSpace or from Amazon, and so I uploaded it to Ingram Spark, which is another uh, indie publisher through Ingram, which is the largest distributor for books, which actually turned out to be quite convenient because on Amazon for paperbacks, at least at the time of my last printing, you couldn't order early versions to have yourself ready to go on launch day. Mm-hmm. Um, but as soon as it was available for you to order, it was available for the public to order, which kind of frustrated with me with my first book. And so I can put it on Ingram Spark and order early copies for myself to have on release day. Ingram Spark is an important tool for self-published authors to know, especially when it comes to bringing your book up to industry standards. Despite Amazon's borderline monopoly on the ebook industry, Ingram Book Group is still the largest book distributor in the US, and Spark, their platform for indie authors, is easily one of the best. It allows authors not only to print paperbacks in advance, but also to distribute them to bookstores, online retailers, libraries, and schools, which, of course, is crucial when it comes to getting your physical copies into readers' hands. The only downside is the learning curve. Ingram Spark doesn't offer much help when it comes to formatting your book, and with trim sizes to contend with, format is more important than ever for indie writers planning to print paperbacks. Fortunately though, Tara discovered one more tool to help her nail the presentation of her book, no matter how unconventional it seemed, on paper. For my first book, I was researching different ways of formatting a book, and I, you know, I looked into Vellum, and I looked into Scrivener, I looked into InDesign, a lot of different ways. And I don't re- even remember how I got onto the Readsy website. Oh, you know what it was? I, when I was researching formatting, um, their marketplace came up. You know, to hire a, a formatter through their marketplace, and they were, I think it was like a beta version or they had just launched their Readsy editor recently and I put my file like my text file my book in there just to see how it would turn out and I really liked the way that it turned out there were a few things that um didn't work at that time because my book was so many pages that the margin, the gutter margins had to be wider in Amazon because, you know, when a, with that many pages, opening the physical book up, you can't have words deep into that gutter. Right. And so that wasn't a standard feature on the Readsy editor. And so I contacted Readsy and they were amazing. They were so awesome in helping me kind of custom fit that to get it ready to go. And then they took those suggestions and they added features to the editor. Um, to make it easier for authors in the future. 
Getting the right look for your book is perhaps the bare minimum requirement for an indie author, but as you can see, it is still easier said than done. There are countless standards to understand and hoops to jump through, and in the end, the control you gain by taking on self-publishing can come back to bite you. If your goal is to sell a lot of books, there's a reason genre-specific covers sell. And if your goal is to make something that you're proud of and that you want to stand behind and it might have to be different than that, then you have to accept the downside of, this: is this going to affect my sales? But the whole point of indie publishing is that you're free to take an unconventional approach to reach readers, or self-publishing startups, or anyone else you think might help you on your road to releasing a bestseller. And though Tara might struggle with tailoring her writing for others, she sure seems to reach them anyway. And so, even in a world full of countless airport novels and yellowbacks, where over a million ebooks are self published each year, Tara still managed to be an original. So, yeah, and I didn't know it at the time, but I found out afterwards that my first book was the first full length paperback that was formatted and published through that editor. Of course, opening a box full of properly formatted paperbacks just in time for the launch party might feel like a natural conclusion to Tara's story, but in true pulp fiction fashion, the ending leaves a few lingering questions to keep you on the hook. Of how do I sell the paperbacks which seem to be selling more than the ebooks? And Tara's answer, predictably, is anything but standard. But we'll save that for next week. I mean, come on, I've got to drag it out a little longer. After all, I wouldn't want this to turn into cheap, brief entertainment. Brought to you by Readsy, this is Best Seller. Over the course of this season, we'll follow an indie author's journey from start to finish in five chapters, exploring each step it takes to turn the escapist world of your dreams into a bona fide young adult series. Next up is Season 3, Chapter 5, The Life of the Launch Party. This episode was written, hosted, and produced by me, Casimir M. Stone. If you liked it, please take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Our guest this season is Tara Holiday, aka TM Holiday, author of the Candian Airs series. You can purchase her books on Amazon or on her website at tmholiday.com. That's T M H O L L A D A Y.com. And you can follow her on Instagram or Twitter at TM Holiday. This podcast, like so many self-published books out there, is made possible by Readsy, a marketplace that connects indie authors with the tools that traditional publishing houses would usually provide, such as editors, book cover designers, and publicists. You can learn more about Readsy on Instagram at Readsy underscore HQ, on Twitter at Readsy HQ, or online at R-E-E-D-S-Y dot com.